Welcome to this episode of Anthropod. I am Marias Valeris, an executive producer on the channel, and I am pleased to bring you this episode, which is a conversation between guests Tulsi Srinivas and Namita Daria on the anthropology of wonder. Their conversation builds out from Srinivas's latest book project, The Cow in the Elevator, an Anthropology of Wonder, and they explore together questions of positionality in the field, canonical inheritances, and experiments with ethnographic writing. As two architects turned anthropologists, they share thoughts about visuality, aesthetics, and attention to built space, as well as consider other forms of observation, including deep listening. Soundscapes from Srinivas's field site, the temples in Maleshwaram, weave in and out of the episode and open listeners to encounters with the various themes that Srinivas and Daria discuss throughout the episode. Without further ado, our guest producers present their conversation, Walking Amid Wonder. My name is Namita Dharia, and I am here today with Professor Tulsi Srinivas from Emerson College, somebody who has spent a career thinking about uh, religiosity, urbanism, questions of globalization and creativity. And today uh, we are here to talk to her a little bit about questions of anthropological practice, forms of writing and representation in anthropology, as well as the work of the imagination. So, Tulsi, you have a new book out uh, called The Cow in the Elevator, An Anthropology of Wonder. Within the book, you really push at a occupying a sense of radical hope and using ritual creativity to think about questions of radical hope, using wonder to think about radical hope. Could you say a little bit more about this concept of uh, radical ritual creativity, radical hope, and what this uh, means to you as a human being and as an anthropologist? Thank you, Namita, first of all, for embarking on a podcast with me. Let me say that your work has influenced me in thinking about the imagination since we both work in similar, though not identical, fields of thinking about urban India. Let me bring it back to the field itself. And in my work on temples in urban Bangalore, what struck me was that despite the precarity of, of lives lived, of the pain and suffering that neoliberalism brought to urban life in Bangalore, including garbage in the streets, endless air and water pollution, rolling blackouts, waiting for jobs, scarcity, fear, hunger. Despite all that suffering, there was, surprisingly to me, a sense of tremendous joy in the cities. And in Bangalore in particular, I noticed this joy. It seemed almost to laugh in the face of the bleakness that we all feel. And I wrote this book in the shadow 
of the 2016 election when vast portion of not just the United States, but the globe was feeling sort of helpless. And I turned to the the priests and devotees in these temples in Malayshram, in Bangalore, to think about what motivated them. And they were pretty clear that it was a pursuit of wonder, adbhuta. And this pursuit of wonder enshrined and engaged a sense of not just hope as an individual hope, the hope that Barack Obama talks about, you know, the sense of that this hope burgeons in people not in spite of circumstances, but perhaps because of them. Because neoliberalism argues for a corrosive individuality where people are separated from one another and each person is believed to be the problem rather than the solution. And what the priests in Malaysia seemed to argue was exactly the opposite, that this was a radical social hope, that in the face of opposition, it merely grew in depth and in breadth. And it gave us a sense that the future could be built, not necessarily better, but it could just be built. And this, I found, was both in terms of how one should live one's life, as well as for anthropology itself, something that was a lesson to take home with us. And so I I felt that the pursuit of wonder and the relationship to this radical social hope was really important. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things I like about the book, but also this idea of wonder, is its ability to both capture a sense of joy, hopefulness, and active engagement uh, with the world, uh, of being present mm-hmm. with the world, but at the same time also speak to the inequalities Mm. and inequities that exist within our world. Mm. And uh, one of the things with religion, especially Hindutva in India, which you write about, it's very embedded Mm. in a a strong exclusionary caste politics, gender politics. And you yourself write about wonder as both sublime delight and existential wound. So as we write ethnography, uh, how do we keep joy, but also examine these existential wounds, uh, these existential structural inequalities that exist within our society. I really struggled to write this book for many reasons that some of which are in the book and some not. But I think your question is exactly sort of the cognate of wonder, that wonder is both dark and light, hopeful, that is not just there's a quality of unheimlich to it, there's a quality of separateness and and exclusion to it. But I think it's quite different in feeling than than the crystalline quality of Hindutva, where the boundaries are tightly drawn. And I see this book actually as fighting against that kind of crystalline exclusionary practice. Because if anything, the priests in Malayshram were, strangely enough, though this was an upper caste, middle class group, strangely inclusive. And I found that quite telling. But when I started out talking about ethnographic practice, some of this made its way into the book. But when I started out, I was not, (laughs) I still am not a good ethnographer, but I was not a good ethnographer. Then I showed up in jeans and uh, loose kurta in quite a traditional temple. And I was kept out. I was kept out because I was this strange creature that was familiar and not. I was an Indian woman who didn't behave like an Indian woman. I assessed 
and figured out that I was upper caste, but I didn't behave that uh, as though I was upper caste because I had been brought up by an anthropologist and I thought caste was a social construct and I was not subject to it. So a lot of the sort of positioning was my understanding of what uh, compliance was required in order to become not necessarily part, but become familiar enough that I was a familiar oddity where they trusted me. Mm-hmm. And part of that was dressing in a way that was acceptable. And as Michael Hertzfeld brilliantly puts it, making my body and gestural significance into something that was acceptable. But it really made me question my identity as an anthropologist, as a woman, as an upper caste woman in India, as a feminist, as the daughter of an anthropologist, as someone who believed in equity as you do, it really made me question all that. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the best sort of field work does. It makes you think about who you are and what you bring to the site and the relationship between you and the people you are talking to. One of the things that the two of us share is this discomfort, but also comfort with being good, bad daughters of uh, South Asia, South Asian anthropology. And I think in your case, it's particularly more (laughs) poignant because your father, M.N. Srinivas, is really responsible for uh, so much of the beginnings of South Asian sociology and anthropology. And uh, within your book, I really see these two registers uh, when it comes to anthropological engagement, writing, canonicity that, that are navigated through the figure of your father. So this act of returning home and doing ethnography, but this act of finding your space within the canonicity of anthropology is very much a twofold act for you Mm -hmm. of engaging with Maleshwaram, but also engaging with your father's literal field notes Mm -hmm. or marginalia Mm -hmm. in in your field notes Mm -hmm. and his voice uh, Mm -hmm. that hovers over all of us in, in anthropology. And so can you talk a little bit about these navigations, not only through anthropology, canonicity, but about the act of writing ethnography as well. And that's that's beautifully put. This book is dedicated to my mother, Rukmini Srinivas, because it was she who got me back to the field when I suffered a deep case of, I just don't want to do this. But uh, I think through the pages, the book is a tribute to um, sort of Indian socio-anthropology and in the figure of my father. And I came to anthropology late, But I must say, as a child, I watched my father being an anthropologist, doing anthropology, and I've never seen anyone have more fun. And he was just good at what he did. He had an innate sense of the way Indian society sort of functioned. He was also deeply committed. I mean, he was the last student of RB in Oxford and the first student of EP. So he had a tremendous sort of genealogy himself, a tremendous inheritance. And as the daughter of that father, who didn't study anthropology, you're right, it was a good, bad daughter. 
And this ethnography was the first time I could talk to my father about things that mattered to him. And that moved me in certain very fundamental ways. And that's why this book was very difficult for me to write, to find my own voice in the shadow of what is, as you put it, the almost the origin point of social anthropology for India was very difficult, as you can imagine. His thoughtful notes, his reading lists haunted me, right? But at the same time, it was not an unheimly haunting. It was delightful. And I had this sort of constant partner to think through with and experienced partner who knew, uh, but who never pushed. What could be better? But at the same time, coming of age and thinking about anthropology is something I do, being an anthropologist, was difficult. And it is only through the primary register of Malayshram that I began to understand what it is anthropologists really do, how we develop such a closeness with our field, and then how we sort of forcibly acquire distance in order to write and think about it. And so this homecoming was, in a sense, much larger than just going to Bangalore. It was a true homecoming. And it, as like you, I was trained as an architect and then found my way to anthropology. So it gave me a true sense of homecoming to a discipline and to a family that I always had, but I never knew I had. I sort of found it. Mm. And that to me was the sort of gift that the book gave to me. Mm. One of the things that I have really always loved about your writing, and I've had the pleasure of reading it over a number of years now, and I've had the pleasure of reading it through my own transition from graduate school to being faculty. And in many ways, it, along with, you know, people such as my advisor, Mary Steedley, it really sought to present an alternate way of writing, representing, that also moves away from the canonical models of writing anthropology, and uh, which for me were often very limiting and very violent. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, your writing gave the space for a multiplicity and a complexity complexity that allows us to inhabit different modes of being. And this is something I've read in your writing as you struggle mm -hmm. to enhance and hone it. So could you say a little bit about your writing process, mm -hmm. the ways in which it moves to be a voice of its own and makes space for other kinds of voices and writings in anthropology? Oh, what a thoughtful question. And uh, yes, you were amongst my first readers when I started struggling to write both this book and other pieces. I find writing so, so difficult. Some people write speedily and easily and, and thoughtfully all at once. I don't. It's so painful for me. And I think part of that pain is, of course, looking at one's own flaws and one's own self, but in relationship to the expectations of the canon, mm -hmm. right? The expectations of the canon are an inherited body of knowledge and the form of that body of knowledge. And uh, being post-colonial feminist from India, of course, um, trained to answer exam questions that are formatted in two time, one is torn between giving the right answer which is expected format, and finding one's own voice, mm -hmm. right? So there's this delicate balance, and it's a very difficult and vulnerable space to inhabit for me. Mm -hmm. When I can't bear to read my own writing, and yet, of course, one has to read it to make it better, 
And so luckily I have friends like you to whom I can mirror it and I can send it in you. And people are disarmingly honest and care about the practice of writing. But having said that, let me say, the discipline of writing is the discipline of finding oneself. And that's why, to me, and that's why it is so painful. It's meditative in a sense of it turns one inwards through the data, but it is also the expression, the representation of someone else, the expression of self, right? Mm -hmm. So the words you choose, the way you articulate the space, etc. And so it brings together all the things in which failure is imminent. You always feel you're not doing the people you mm -hmm. care about justice. Mm -hmm. You always feel that the words could be better, could be sh the argument could be sharper. But in the end, it is also looking at those failures square in the face mm -hmm. and saying, yes, and this is a different way to approach the exact same idea. And so method in writing has become increasingly important to me. Mm -hmm. The way one writes as an expression of other and self mm -hmm. is really significant. And I think one can write in an extraordinarily traditional format mm -hmm. some extraordinarily disruptive and beautiful ideas. Mm -hmm. And I yearn towards doing that. And I think the more we expand the canon in that sense, in writing, and this I learned from the priest, writing in an experimental model. Mm -hmm. And lots of South Asians do this. Lots of anthropology does this. But I think that that allows younger scholars and graduate students to see different sort of models of writing and different ways of thinking about expressiveness. And that has been my goal now in writing. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love about the voice within your writing is your ability to intermingle different forms of conversation, but also the liveliness of actually being within the field. And like, you know, I just open the book and like um, have a page, uh, you know, where you've written. For younger devotees, Dandu's Alankaram was an acceptance and demonstration of the flow of wealth through the city. Ravi had been a college student when I began the study and since graduated and found a job. He was always particularly well-dressed in expensive shirts and watches that set him apart. I asked devotees about him, and I'm going to mess up the Kannada here, but Avanna, Ayyo, Mintagu, Mintagu, Kannada, oh him, he is minting money. In 2006, minting was a phrase I began to hear around the temple. So I'm interested in this conversation between self and those in the field, in this collectivity that emerges through ethnographic work, also the multiplicity of self that emerges through ethnographic work and then embeds itself in writing. And so could you say a little bit more about how you connected those kinds of practices or like drew that collectivity into writing? Yeah, that is such a difficult question for me because suspect like you, I'm a very visual person, having trained in a sort of visual field. And so I tend to be observational in, in the visual sense. But I am, <laughs> if anything, also joyful. And so I tend to over-participate at times. Yeah. So I have to draw back. But to me, what was really important, is fundamentally important in any ethnography I write, is to get at a sense of the society. And India is, as every any anthropologist will say about their society, but particularly full of difference mm -hmm. between gender and caste and class and individual variation and ethnic variation and linguistic variation. Mm -hmm. So I sought to sort of give a fuller sense 
of who was at the temple. Mm -hmm. And Ravi was representative of one particular kind of person. Actually, the book didn't contain much descriptions of people, mm -hmm. but my brilliant peer reviewers sort of pushed me and said, describe them. Mm -hmm. We want to get fixes on these people. Mm -hmm. And so I tried to pick like one or two sentences mm -hmm. that brought these people to life. You know, Ravi was, he would wear very expensive shirts several hundred rupees each, several thousand rupees each, and expensive watches. And he was showing the world that he had made it. Mm -hmm. He started out lower middle class, and mm -hmm. he had clearly risen. Mm -hmm. And there were many people like this, mm -hmm. both men and women alike. And minting was a phrase that men undertook, minting money. Mm -hmm. And the women, by contrast, were minching, which in Kannada means shining, radiant with gold jewelry or diamonds. So I wanted to show that the division of gender and the way wealth played through mm -hmm. in this particular example. But as you know, just a few phrases well chosen can bring this to life in mm -hmm. a way, bring the field to life in a way that gestures to the many shades yeah. that are going through the field. I would have never done it had I not been pushed by peer reviewers. Mm. Thank you, Duke University Press peer reviewers. So one of the things again that I think about a lot and I think about in relationship to your work is this question of the aesthetic realm, aesthetic registers, not only as adding a certain kind of immersive experience to writing or informing us in particular ways about things that go on in the field, but also as critical sites of analysis. And one of the things that presents itself strongly within your work is this idea of the sari mm -hmm. and being joyous about these heavy silks and thinking about saris as a site of uh, feminine joy. Joy, but also the differences yes. in, in saris. And uh, this comes out very poignantly when you talk about cow herding communities and the difference in the sari structures uh, that are more, you know, Bollywood-esque, as one of uh, the people next to you whispers in your ear. And um, so what does the aesthetic do for you? And how does the aesthetic occupy the realm of the ethical and the political uh, within ethnography. Wow. The temple is always, the deity is always surrounded by a phalanx of men. Mm -hmm. One can barely see the deity being a woman. The priests are all male in South India. Uh, most of the goshtis, that is the liturgical scholars, are male. So to find women in the temple and to find that they too were annoyed, I have to get us the aesthetics of 
being a woman. Mm-hmm. And part of being a woman was wearing the sari. And I started actually noticing the textiles and the colors and the forms of saris much more because I started wearing them. And I started feeling the sheer joy of picking a beautiful sari and wearing it and wearing it well. And that was part of my compliance that then became part of my identity. And so I think that aesthetics, as in the dressing of the deity in these saris, these jeweled saris, the dressing of the devotees, started becoming a key element of Mm self-expression and started becoming a key element of the things I noticed. Mm -hmm. And it is a key element of ritual expression in in the temples, right? How you dress the deity, Mm -hmm. what the deity is dressed in, Mm -hmm. how the deity is dressed given the ritual occasion really means something. Mm -hmm. For example, one of the priests decorates the deity in different kinds of fruit. Mm-hmm. Another might decorate them in turmeric base. Mm-hmm. So aesthetics is, in a sense, the theological, mm-hmm. clearly. It is also because women of different classes and men as well dressed differently and denote that class and caste differently based on how they wear the sari and what saris they choose is obviously also hierarchical mm-hmm. and therefore, in some senses, ethical. Who you exclude might be based on how richly they are dressed or not. And so wearing a rich kanjivaram indicated a certain kind of upper class access. But the most wealthy and the most upper caste wore very subdued khadi, you know, in the Gandhian sense, aesthetics. They were so wealthy that they didn't need to parade their wealth. They didn't need to show that they were minching. So the Bollywood chamak dhamak, Mm. particularly in South India, was seen as North Indian when I started fieldwork and evidence of a North Indian aesthetic. And then it started to be seen as evidence of a celebrity aesthetic. So people wanted to be noticed would wear that. So the gods could wear it, right, and get away with it. But it was also seen as not nazuka, which is a Kannada sort of an Arabic bastardization, a Kannada version, which says not refined enough. Mm-hmm. But as Bollywood cinema became the cinema of India and penetrates, that aesthetic penetrated over the course of my 18-year fieldwork, the DT started dressing that way. The devotees started dressing that mm-hmm. way. And my kanjivarams had to be retired in favor of what chamak dhamak, you know, this mm-hmm. sort of magical, scintillating, shining, glittery sort of aesthetics. And so... That is sensuality of the political that I had not anticipated and which shifted over time. And so the the cowherds wearing Bollywood sari starts out in the beginning of my fieldwork as demonstrating their dominant caste, not upper caste status, and their aspirational status as well. But by the end of my fieldwork, it demonstrates them being on the cutting edge. It demonstrates Mm -hmm. their sort of global abilities, it demonstrates their their glittering potential in a sense. So the sari becomes an index, almost a totem, but an index nonetheless of these multiple worlds that are constantly shifting. Mm -hmm. So the aesthetics, the sensuality of the temple really moved to me. You know, the sound of the temple bells, the sound of the chanting, the the scent of the incense and the jasmine that women wore, the colors of the haldi, the kumkum, the the wet stones and the trees, it brings me back to that space and I have a deep fondness for it. Mm. And it uh, moves me in certain fundamental ways connecting memory to sensuality.
So we began this podcast with a wonderful sound piece from Rituals at the Temple and of Maleshwaram. And as we are speaking within a podcast and we think about the nature of podcasts themselves, I'm thinking about questions around sound mm-hmm. uh, in writing ethnography and doing ethnography mm-hmm. and the ways in which sound sensoriality is a very strong immersive trigger, but also a site of knowledge formation and dissemination. So reacting to some of these sound pieces, not only as ways of enabling listeners to inhabit the spaces that we are speaking about, but also learn about the spaces and forms of doing anthropology that we're talking about. What importance does sound have to you within your own work? Yeah, we've been listening to sounds that I recorded while doing my field work at the beginning of the piece and interspersed through the podcast. And now I love this question that loops us to the value of sound. And anthropologists are very good about writing about space and they're wonderful about writing about people and textures and light, visuality. But sound has less been attended to. Ethnomusicologists write beautifully about sound. What has struck me when I was in the field as parallels is that best anthropologists are always listening. They're not just observing. Observing implies visuality. They're listening. And deep listening is a quality of, to me, a great ethnographer. It's also the quality of an audience or a devotee Mm -hmm. through bhajans and through sacred music. People are transported. That's the point. That's a function of sound in the temple that it creates, as you say, immersive uh, devotional space. It also, uh, the drums in the temple that we listen to are also to keep inauspicious sounds away. And so there is a quality of the sound that speaks to the theology and it speaks to a sense of attention to that which matters, which in the temple's case is the deity, but in anthropologist's case is, is data. And I am always struck when I speak about the quality of listening in the audience. Mm-hmm. And I'm very moved when the listening is deep and thoughtful. Writing about sound is enormously difficult. One can talk about tempos and rhythms. One can talk about percussiveness. One can talk about melodiousness. But to actually get the quality of sound across is only possible by hearing it, listening to it. And for me, the sounds of the temple are totally triggers for memory. They transport me into the space of the temple almost instantly. And I can listen to a bhajan and remember a moment in the temple when that was played or listen to the sounds of the camphor flame being offered. Always people focus on the visuality of it, but the temple bells at that moment, the clanging of the temple bells, transports me to that fundamental sort of relationship moment between the devotee and the deity. So I think Hinduism, strangely, um, in Hindu theology, one is always focused on the visual face of God. But where Christian theology begins with, at the beginning, there was light. Mm. In Hindu theology, the origin of the universe is in sound, Mm. the sound of Om. Mm. So sound plays a really important place in Hindu understandings of this multiverse and how it echoes and how it resonates. Mm. There's a certain linguistic as well as listening ability. And to me, the beauty of the podcast 
and doing it with you has been such a pleasure. The beauty of the podcast is the relationship to sound, how we transmit information through sound, how listening makes us a community yeah. of listeners, how we understand how to be an ontology basically yeah. through sound. Yeah. And that's why these pieces are so embedded in my sort of feeling for the field. Hmm. Continuing the conversation on sound in relationship to our conversation about the ethics and politics of aesthetics, I often think about sound in my own writing as a disciplinary apparatus, hmm. but also the ways in which it manages to tie selfhood to collectivity also lend triggers to ways of being mm -hmm. that, you know, depending on the nature of sound can be extractive, as in the case of construction work, mm -hmm. you know. So I'm thinking about how does sound fold into the multiplicity of aesthetics mm -hmm. that are present within a field site, mm -hmm. within field work? I think that that's a fascinating question. And I haven't thought enough about sound, I must confess. But to me, the generative community-building sound of Temple Bells, it focused the attention of the community upon the deity, was set in contrast to the grinding of the gears and the pouring of concrete that was happening in the city as I was, and the cutting of trees. So the sound of the violence of city building, as it were, of clearing a site, building a city anew, which was what was happening in Bangalore, was set in parallel yet apart from the sound of focus. And so one was dissipative and one was accumulative, if one can make those contrasts. Sound is expression of piety, which is a long tradition in anthropology, understanding sound as being pious. We know that the resonance of sound, certainly in Islam, Charles Hushkin's work and Sabah Mahmood's work, right? Certainly we understand it in Islam. It's less understood because scholars of Hinduism have focused on visuals. And even I do in the book. And yes, an interesting sort of moment in the book, a pivotal moment in the book to me, is when the drummers of the temple are replaced with a mechanical drum. And how this changes the shape of the community in the temple. It changes hierarchies in the temple. And it changes the sort of sound quality of the temple, right? Rather than the staccato, irregular rhythm of a human being beating the drum, you get this regular, sustained, mechanical drumbeat. And I think it removes an essential quirkiness and beauty from the temple. I'm not talking about music here. I'm just talking about rhythm analysis, mm -hmm. basically. And I think that in the rhythms of life, we frequently negate the sounds around us because we think of them as intruding upon something we want to do. Yet as an ethnographer, particularly one who grew up in India where there's sound all around, the soundscape is extremely sort of vibrant, multiple, harsh almost. And coming to the United States where the soundscape is very muted, I was thirsty for a vibrant soundscape. Mm -hmm. And I think that that led me to think about sound differently. It sort of gets me thinking about the multiplicity of soundscapes across the world mm -hmm. and how listening is very much an act of being 
within different places, being with different people. I think um, listening in ethnography particularly is an act of honoring. Absolutely. And I think that it's becoming a lost art and that we don't listen enough, even strangely sometimes as anthropologists whose job description it is to listen. There's a small book written by, of all people, someone who worked for the World Bank, and it's called Listen to the People. And it's actually about the qualities required to be a good ethnographer, and it focuses deeply not on just observing. We always talk about participant observation, but listening as a sort of key tool. So the sound pieces not only are aid memoirs and triggers, as you call them, for memory, they're also immersive experiences to me, and they remind me that listening is at the core of the work we do. So within the book, you also speak about this idea of uh, ritual as rupture capture mm -hmm. uh, in a dialectical relationship. And one of the things that makes me think about is ethnographic work as rupture capture within itself. And I'm thinking about the relationship of ritual and ethnography. Mm -hmm. And again, here I feel like the two registers of the book, one in talking about a particular way of life in Malayshwaram and more broadly in India, and then the second in terms of talking about anthropology really emerges in this question of ritual. So what about ethnography is ritual? Mm -hmm. And as you say, you're more interested in what ritual is than what ritual does. Mm -hmm. And can one think about that in a parallel to what ethnography is mm -hmm. and what ethnography does? Mm -hmm. I mean, that is the core sort of problem of the book, I think. And I fell upon the idea of rupture capture because in Hindu theology, as you know, uh, the origin of the multiverse is fata, which is the breaking of the, the origin point, which in scientific terms is the Big Bang. So this swata is the, it is from that crack that the universe emerges. It is from that break. And I thought that's so interesting. That enables both a rupturing of what one knows, which is time and space, but a capturing of what yet is to be known. Mm -hmm. And that was a sort of central hinge to understand what wonder was, mm -hmm. right? It enabled to both uh, the rupturing and capturing of neoliberal ways of being. It enabled both the rupturing and capturing of quote-unquote traditional ways of being. And so ritual creativity, ritual itself functioned not to stabilize the society, which is what anthropologists have always thought, that one entered ritual, changed status, and then returned to a sort of, sort of the status of society. But rather, it seemed that these people, these localites in Malaysia, wanted to stay in the ruptured moment. And that was the enraptured moment of wonder, mm -hmm. that it is a rupture of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. It is a rupture of the everyday. Mm -hmm. The mundane ceases to exist, yeah. right? And if they wanted to stay in that ritual threshold, in Van Gennep's betwixt and between, the idea is that you are between two things. Mm -hmm. But what if you stay in that between? And that sort of made me think that this is exactly what anthropologists do. Mm -hmm. They are between worlds, mm -hmm. right? We stand on the ritual threshold. We stand on the threshold of not being fully at home anywhere. Mm -hmm. That is the whole point of it. Because if you're fully at home anywhere, you can't represent it. You can't write about it, certainly. And so there was a sort of mirroring, a sort of Alice in Wonderland in this book happening, mm -hmm. that there was this world that I inhabited as an anthropologist and this world that the priests inhabited as doing ritual. And the priest told me, 
you tell our stories. That is the same as doing ritual. They tell me that. Mm -hmm. And only then, dumb that I am, it occurs to me, yes, we are mirrors of one another. And I think that you hit the nail on the head. The book functions parallelly and interweaves the ethnography with the wonderment. Mm -hmm. And I think wonder is particularly appropriate. In fact, I quote Margaret Mead in the book. She says, one should register the astonishment with which we see the other. Mm -hmm. Registering it. Mm -hmm. It's not just we are astonished mm -hmm. when we yeah. see something, yeah. but we register that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that that's both brilliant and so profound. Mm -hmm. And I think that wonder is exactly that. It is curiosity. It's creativity. But both these lead to compassion. They lead to an understanding of the other in the other's terms. Not in the terms of the stranger or the ethnographer, but in speaking, allowing the other to have voice mm -hmm. and understanding that self-expression and allowing it to just stay. I think that is core for me. Yeah, and I also think that the between occupies a between of violence and hope. And I think that the, as much as the book is joyous, it also navigates through despair and you know, darkness. So darkness to achieve radical hope. And I think that speaks to a larger anthropological quest to not only occupy a critical lens and think through an active engagement with the ways in which society works, uh, but also think about ways forward that work against the existing violences. And so in that sense, our writing and our work is always a betwixt yes. and between yes. in a multiplicity of yes. ways. Exactly right. Yeah. And I and I'm so glad I did this with you because you you just caught at the sort of sensibility of the book that there's an essential vulnerability. I didn't want this book to be sort of naive assumption of hope. Mm -hmm. That was not, it, that's too thin a representation. I wanted it to show the darkness that was contemporary Bangalore, the descent into despair, the violences that were done against these people, and yet the sense of joy. I found that, importantly, ethnography talks about suffering. It talks about pain. And that is very important for it to do because mm -hmm. if we don't talk about it, who will? But I think as a student who read one ethnography after another of despair and darkness, I started feeling a sense of generalized anxiety, both about the people whom I read about and about the field of anthropology. Mm -hmm. And here I found people where there was anxiety in their lives, and yet they consciously turned towards joy and wonder. They laughed every day, made silly jokes. They worshipped the God in the hope of a new tomorrow. They sang, they danced. They are joyful. And I wanted to represent the counterpoints, the counterpoises of their existence, and to say that, like them, anthropology is combined, like life, of, of all these shades mm. of being. And there is a lot of darkness in this book. There's a lot of precarity in this book. There's a lot of pain in this book. But I felt that as an anthropologist, I was focused on that because I wanted to know how to make it better, whereas these people were figuring out pragmatically how to make it better. And so it seemed that, that my interlocutors had the answer mm. in, a, in a very sophisticated yet simple way.
Thank you, Tulsi. This was a really great conversation. And, I had such know, a good time. Thank you for always pushing me to think differently about the ways in which I approach things, but also for making space for being different in anthropology. I think that's a, a gift that your writing yeah. gives many of us. I'm touched. Thank you, Namita, for this. It was so much fun. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Anthropod, the podcast of the Society for Cultural Anthropology, produced in collaboration with the American Anthropological Association. We would like to thank Tulsi Srinivas and Namita Daria, the guest producers of this show. We are also grateful for the Loose ACLS Fellowship in Religion, Journalism, and International Affairs which supports Professor Srinivas's ongoing research on toxicity, water, and the sacred imagination in Bangalore. Srinivas's loose ACLS project is titled The Absent Goddess, Religion, Ecology, and Violence in Urban India, and the time afforded by the fellowship has been invaluable to the conception and production of this episode. We also thank Yashoda Vasanth for recording some of the sounds in the field, and Merve Gursis for help with sound editing. You can find pictures from Maleshwaram on the show notes page for this episode over on our brand new relaunched website at colanth.org. Do be sure to check it out. You can subscribe to Anthropod via iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And for the latest updates from the Society for Cultural Anthropology, find us on Facebook and Twitter at length. I'm Marias Faleris, and thanks for listening to Anthropod.